Well, good morning again. There's no children's moment today, but you get to hear from me to preach because John is out of town. (laughs) So earlier this week, my kids said to me, hey, Dad, every time you get up to preach, your voice changes. (laughs) Your voice gets really high, like you have this really high preaching voice. So I'm trying to compensate for that. And I think I've overshot. (laughs) But could you imagine if I came out like this and I said, hey, good morning, everybody. There's no way you would take me seriously no matter what I said. So you're a bunch of sinners. (laughs) It just loses its punch, you know? Sorry, that's weird. (laughs) Just but we all have different voices, right? So kids, you know the voice of your mom when she's upset, right? You may not have a preaching voice, mom, but you've got an angry whisper (laughs) that your kids know they're in trouble. Or you have that friendly voice when you can't quite remember somebody's name in the grocery store. You're like, hey, good to see you. And I just had this this morning when Mike and Debbie Bartlett were here. I was like, hi. And it was coming. I promise, Mike, it was coming. It takes a while to download those files. But he was kind. And he goes, oh, it's Mike and Debbie Bartlett. I was like, yes, I know. Of course it is. So it's good to have you back with us. But we all have those kinds of voices, right? And some of us, we'd even say we have different praying voices. Now, don't point at them, but some people in this room, they tend to pray a little King James, right? All of a sudden, it's not the way they normally talk, but then when they decide to pray, they're like, Oh, greatest Father, in thine heavens above, thou rulest thy kingdom with a gracious heart and providential wisdom. And, oh yeah, thank you for this food. Amen. Right? It's we have different voices. And I'm not trying to judge, but some of us are also way too casual in our prayers, if you ask me. We speak to God like he's our surfing buddy, or maybe even like our boyfriends. We're like, hey, Jesus, how are you doing? Awesome. We're so good down here. Like, it's totally cool. It is really, and I bet you had something to do with that, didn't you, Lord? Yeah, you did. Cool, cool, cool. Mm, Heart emoji, prayer hands, amen, right? (laughs) We do these weird things when we pray. So, wherever you are on the spectrum this morning with your voice, wherever you fall, King James, surfing buddy, whether you feel like you have to perform when you pray or when your voice tends to change because you're nervous or you're anxious about what you might say, whatever your prayer voice is, this morning what I want you to hear from our text in the message is that God wants to hear your voice. God wants to hear you pray. He wants to hear your voice. He's inviting you in no matter what you sound like, no matter how silly it may be for you to pray. He wants you to enjoy the privilege that it is to pray. And to see this truth, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 11. So I invite you in your Bibles to turn there now so that we can see how Jesus teaches us 
to pray. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 869 in those little pew Bibles, which, by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own or even a Bible with that same translation, the ESV that we use around here, you're welcome to take that home with you. It's a gift. Just take it and enjoy it and read it. We'd love for you to have that Bible. But Luke chapter 11, and as you can probably see from the heading, is called The Lord's Prayer. We actually read a portion of this this morning in our scripture reading out loud, and I could feel it in the room that some of you were like, hey, there's some words missing. This isn't quite right. That's because you're used to saying it out of Matthew, and this is the version in Luke, which I think is actually a different occasion than when Jesus taught it on the Sermon on the Mount, but he's refreshing the disciples and he's teaching them this lesson. And the reason why I picked this passage this morning is because for most of my life, I have struggled with prayer. It's one of those hard things. And it's hard to say that as a pastor, to be somebody that struggles with prayer. But I can remember, I don't know how many times I've asked other people to pray for me about my prayers whether I don't pray enough or I pray that there are, I, I, I'm not too sure what I'm saying or I just want to pray more. To be honest, I've often felt like prayer is more of a burden than a privilege. And so I figure I'm not alone in that feeling of prayer being a burden and not so much a privilege. And so I wanted to share with you a few of the things that God has been teaching me. And so that's what I want us to see in Luke 11, when Jesus teaches his disciples, and then by extension, all of us, how to pray. And I recognize, even before we read this passage, that there's far more that we could pull out of it. I'm not going to cover everything that could be said about this passage, and so just know that up front. But let's start in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you join me in saying a prayer as we ask the Lord to apply this passage to our lives? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we ask for you to speak to us this morning. Speak to us through your word. I pray that your truth would reign over anything that I would say. Pray that anything false or wrong would just fall flat to the ground. And would we leave here encouraged in our prayers and drawn into a closer, intimate communication with you. So Lord, I pray that your word would go out and it would accomplish the work that you have for it today. Amen. So I think it's really important that we see this opening line in verse 1. How Jesus was out praying. Think about the implications of that just simple statement. That Jesus was praying. Right there, it should eliminate and destroy so many of our just resistant thoughts and objections to prayer. Where we think, hey, it's a waste of time, or God already knows what we're going to say, so why even pray? He already has a plan, just let him do it. My prayers don't do anything. Prayer doesn't work, right? All these objections that come to our mind, Jesus prayed. He was on earth for about 33 years and did ministry for about three of those years. And in those three years, he traveled the entire countryside there in Israel and he taught, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he did miracles, he was ushering in the kingdom of God and he came with a purpose to rescue all of mankind from our sins, all those that would place their faith in him to rescue us for eternity, and Jesus took time to pray. He was not too busy to pray. He was not overwhelmed with the things of this world, the pressures that were being hoisted upon him to pray. He was God who knew all things, praying to his Father who knew all things, and yet he prayed. It wasn't that Jesus was telling his Father any new information that he didn't know. But Jesus valued prayer. In fact, many a times throughout the Gospels, you see him leaving ministry opportunities, leaving the hurting, the sick, the needy, the hungry to go away to a desolate place so that he could pray. You say, well, Jesus, you had all this power. You could have done something there. You could have really gone to work. And Jesus would say, I did by going away to pray. Jesus prayed because he had to. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. In John chapter 8, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus, while here on earth, prayed because he had to. He fully depended on the power of his Father in order to do any of the things that he was going to do. It's how he connected to that, that power was through prayer. In fact, in Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, he says this, Jesus is without question the most dependent human being who ever lived. Because he can't do life on his own, he prays. And he prays and he prays 
When Jesus tells us that apart from me, you can do nothing, he is inviting us into his life of a living dependence upon his Father. That's an amazing thought that Jesus prayed and depended on his Father. You see, Jesus knew that to be truly human is to be completely dependent on the Lord. It's only in our sin that we think we don't need God. It's only in our pride that we think we can do it on our own and go it solo. Jesus needed to pray, so he prayed. He made it a priority in his life, and he counted it a privilege to pray. In fact, it was so part of his routine, his disciples noticed it. They saw how prayer was so important to him. So they come and they ask him, hey Lord, teach us to pray. Which is the only time recorded in scripture where the disciples actually ask Jesus to teach them anything. They don't say, teach us to preach, teach us to heal, teach us to do miracles. They say, teach us to pray. And Jesus does. He teaches his disciples and he teaches us. Why does he teach us? Because he wants us to pray. He wants us to pray. And so out of this passage, there are three big picture ideas that I want to pull that Jesus taught about prayer that I hope encourage us to pray. So let's look real closely at number one, which we'll find in the prayer itself. So starting in verse 2 again. He says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. It cannot be overstated how important that first word is in this prayer. Father. Father. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to call God Father. We're not speaking to a force, some mystical power. He's not a cosmic vending machine or some angry deity who is merely tolerating us, that we have to appease him with our prayers. He is inviting us in to an intimate relationship with his Father. And so here's point one for those that like to write things down. God, your heavenly Father, is real and he listens to you. So pray. God, your heavenly Father, he is real and he listens to you. So pray. So after this tragedy the previous week here in Texas, I don't know if you've been following the news and reading the articles, it's just such a sad situation. But through it, I've seen there's kind of been a theme in some of these articles where prayer, for some reason, is under attack. And I've heard many comments coming out of the frustration that surrounds that situation. People are making comments like, hey, just save your prayers. Stop your praying and start doing something. Or even I heard, prayer doesn't work. Here is the proof. Now I hear the pain in those comments. 
I understand the frustration in the face of such evil and sadness to this tragedy that it was in Texas last week. It makes sense to say things like that if God were not real and if God did not hear our prayers, if he wasn't our father who loves us and who is listening to us, then yeah, save your prayers and get to work and do something. But that is not the case. Prayer is not a waste of time. It is not the last thing you do once you've done all that you can on your own. It's not sending well wishes or positive thoughts, merely offering moral support to those who are hurting from a distance. Praying is approaching God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who holds us all together, who has a plan, has a will, and he's driving all of history towards his purposes. And praying is drawing near to that Father that is in heaven, pouring out your heart, displaying your utter dependence upon him, and trusting in his good plan. And in our times of need, we seek his help. When we are alone, we seek his comfort and he gives it as our father. And we gain wisdom from his infinite understanding. And prayer changes the world because God is at work. Because he listens to our prayers. So all that follows here in Jesus' prayer is determined and only possible by the first word, Father. It all depends on that. So if you want God to be hallowed and made holy and revered in your life, He must be your Father. You would only want God's will to be done if He were your Father, and you want His kingdom to come, not your own. You would only seek your daily provisions from Him if He were your Father. You'd only seek His forgiveness if you knew that you needed it because He was God Almighty. And you would only come to Him to help you forgive others and to live a life of obedience and love for Him because you know He is God that you answer to. And so the question I have for you this morning is, God your Father? Jesus is teaching his disciples here how to pray. Not necessarily the entire world. This is for us who are believers, who call God Father and who are considered his children. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, God is the creator of all, but only the Father of his children. And you're only his child when you place your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and believe in the gift that he offers us with his death on the cross. And you've been redeemed and bought back from this world of sin and brokenness and death. And you're given new life in him. You're adopted into his family and you're called son or daughter of God. Galatians 3.26 makes it very simple. It says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. See, is God your father? Well, only if you have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Then God is your father. And you can pray this way. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that non-Christians can't pray or should never pray or that God doesn't listen to them. For God does send the rain on the just and the unjust and his common grace goes out over all the world. And God is a big, compassionate, loving God. But there is something unique that happens when his children pray. There is something special in the communication between a father and a son or daughter. And so Jesus teaches us to pray to God, our Father. And He is real. And He's really listening to you. So pray. So now let's look at the two parables that Jesus uses to help his disciples understand a little bit more. And in these two parables, Jesus is making a contrast where he's giving an example of a type of a person. And then he says, okay, if this is true and they do this, then how much more would your heavenly father do it like this? So that's the unwritten. You're not going to see those words, how much more in the text. But that's the, I think, the assumed contrast that Jesus is making. I'll show you what I mean. Let's read the first one again, starting in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So he's using this story as you have a visitor come into your house and you're unprepared for their visit. So you go to your neighbor looking for supplies. But he and his family are already sleeping and they'd prefer to stay in bed and they'd like to ignore your request. So this man, he's not very giving, he's not very charitable, not very loving, but through your persistence and just banging on the door and annoying him, he will finally give you what you ask. So the contrast that Jesus is making here is that this person is neglectful. He is uh, not charitable, not very giving. And yet God, your heavenly Father, is incredibly gracious, incredibly giving, full of mercy and grace, perfectly loving, perfectly charitable. So how much more then would he lovingly give you things when you ask them? Your neighbor gives you stuff when you annoy him. How much more will your heavenly father give you things because he enjoys giving you those things? The neighbor's grumpy and stingy and selfish. So how much more will God, who Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says in the coming ages he will give us, show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has an infinite wealth of gifts to give and grace 
to offer. And so here's our second point from today. God is compassionate and He cares for you. So pray. God is compassionate and He cares for you. So pray. Pray. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it tells us to cast all our anxieties on Him for He cares for you. God loves to be compassionate for you. God loves to give you good gifts. God loves to show His immeasurable riches of grace in kindness to you. Can you believe that this morning? Can you believe it when you pray? Is that how you approach God, your Father, who's got an infinite wealth of gifts to give? And you come to Him and say, God, could I just have a little peace? He's not running out. He's not too busy. And He's not begrudgingly answering our prayers. So Jesus says, keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking. The door will be opened. You will find what you seek and you will receive what you ask for. And then right on cue, Jesus knows what you just thought. When those objections that hit your brain just like they hit mine, wait a minute. I've prayed for things and not received them. I have found plenty of closed doors and I keep asking, and yet nothing. Has God forgotten about me? Is Jesus exaggerating this promise? Is this not true? And Jesus, he knows that that's what we would be thinking. So he gives the second parable to answer that objection. So look again here at verse 11. Jesus continues and says, What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, I'm traditionally a really bad gift giver. I've just, my whole life, I'm not a good gift giver. You can ask anyone in my family. And I made the mistake of the other day asking my family. I said, hey, have I ever given you a gift that was just like horrible? And Jubilee's response, faster than the words could even come out of my mouth, was, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, there's a story there. What happened? So apparently, I had some coupon to a special store at some point. And I was told to go buy some pajamas that they saw online. They looked really comfy and nice. And I went to the store, but instead of buying the comfy pajamas, I bought a hat. Don't ask why. I don't know. But I bought a hat. I bring home said hat, and I say, here, I got this for you. And Jubilee, she said she looked at it and knew. I, she questioned maybe even was I her father? She's like, this hat, the inside has Sherpa. You know I don't like Sherpa. It's itchy on my skin. It's so uncomfortable. That's a color I don't wear. That is ugly. That's like the worst looking hat. How often do I even wear hats? I don't even wear hats. What are you doing buying me a hat? What happened to the pajamas? Weren't you listening? 
why? And so I was like, okay, okay. So we go back to the store. I'm like, I can fix this. I'm, I'm humble. I can just go to the, I'll try and do an exchange. We go to the store. I bring the hat back. We pick out the pajamas. We're up at the counter. And the lady says, oh, I'm sorry. You already used the coupon on the hat. I can't like undo the coupon use. And so you're going to have to pay full price for the pajamas. And I'm like, mm, not worth it. And so we walk out with nothing. <laughs> and I'm, I let her hold the pajamas, feel them. And then we put them right back, right? Never to get them. I think Father's Day is coming up. I deserve something on that day. I don't know what, but. But to my credit, I wasn't intentionally trying to be bad or harmful to my daughter. I was just negligent, unthoughtful, and cheap. That was my sin. But the father in the parable here that Jesus is telling, he's saying, this is so much worse. What kind of father wants to give something harmful to their kid? When your kid asks for food of an egg or some fish, and the dad instead gives a serpent or a scorpion, that is an evil father. And actually, a few chapters before this, you see Jesus using those images of the scorpion and the serpent to refer to demons and the devil. And so Jesus is like, you guys are evil. I get that. But none of you are so evil that your kid comes and says, hey, dad, can I have some dinner? And instead you give them the devil. You're like, here, have some demons for breakfast. You guys don't even do that. So then he makes the contrast. How much more your heavenly Father who loves you and who is good can give you good gifts. So here's our third big picture point today. God is good and knows how to give good gifts. God is good and he knows how to give good gifts. So pray. So pray. So when I don't instantly get what I ask for, I'm tempted to think that God is more like the evil father from this parable than my heavenly father who loves me. And that temptation to think that way goes all the way back to the garden. That's what Satan would love us to think. Where he says, hey, God doesn't want to give you all that's good. He wants to give you a little bit less than. If you would just do this, think that God is somehow holding out on you. He's pulling back from you. He doesn't want to give you these good things. God's really actually out for your demise, your harm, your hurt, and not for your good. That is Satan's lie that he is really good at whispering in our ears. It's a direct challenge to the goodness of God, a challenge to his grace. So we ask for something in prayer, and we think it's good. And then sometimes we receive what would be, in our estimation, the worst possible outcome. We pray for healing, and then death comes. We pray for safety, only to run into danger. We pray for hope, and our hearts fall into hopelessness. And we say, God, did you not hear me? Do you not care? Are you not good? Are you not able to answer this prayer? This is obviously something good, God. I'm not asking for a jet or for a Corvette. God, what are you doing? And Jesus wants us to hear 
This answer loud and clear. You who are evil know how to give good gifts. How much more does your good God give you good gifts? In fact, give you the best. Give you the best. So I used this illustration the other night at my care group. Where if you were to imagine that you were to explore a deep, dark cave, this is life, is exploring this cave. And all you have to see by is that little candle that they put on that front headlamp thing. Not even an electric one, but like one that's lit. A candle. And that's all that you have to see by. And you're groping around in this cave filled with cracks and crevices and poisonous animals. Just feet out of your vision then what you have to imagine is that when you're praying, you're talking to the God who operates with the lights on. He sees it all. In fact, he's the one that created the cave. And he made it just for you. And he's got a plan for you to wander through this cave to eventually find the treasure that he has prepared for you. The treasure of himself for all of eternity. And he knows that that is what is best. And so you see very limited sight in front of you. And many times you think, this is the wrong way. God, you've taken me astray. You've led me down the most dangerous of paths. God, we're lost. I don't know where we are. I don't know what we're doing. All the while, God from above says, I know where you are. And I know where you're going. And I know why. And I will take you there. And so we keep praying. We keep crying out to the God who is there because God does not want you to be satisfied with less so that you stop looking for more. And so sometimes the kindest thing that God can do is say no and to leave a prayer unanswered. C.S. Lewis famously said, we are like children satisfied with making mud pies in the yard because we don't really know what a vacation at the sea is really like. Sometimes we can be far too satisfied with the things that we want here and now, not seeing how that, that might prevent us from getting what God truly has for us later. So we don't want a false good that satisfies our flesh today but a godly good that satisfies our soul for eternity. And those, I think, are the hardest steps of faith that we have to take on this journey of life. The steps by where the light that we have in front of us, the wisdom that we can apply to a situation, it seems that there could be nothing good about this. We cry out and say, Lord, this is not the way. Not like this. Please, God, this is not Good. You, have you lost control? And the question that Jesus wants you to ask your heart is say, can you trust that God is good and he knows what to give you and when? Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's one of those promises that you just have to hold on to by faith. Because it's hard to see that in reality day by day. Where you look at the suffering and tragedies of this world and say, yeah, but God's working it for good. That's, it's hard to put that on a mug 
and make that reality for you every morning. But yet I think if you pair that verse with what God has intended for you, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, it says, so we do not lose heart. Even when Paul, he's like shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and cast out for dead. And he just goes through this whole list of horrible situations. And then he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So sometimes you will not see what God sees. Sometimes you will not understand what God understands. In fact, I'd say not sometimes, all the time. You do not see and understand what God sees and understands. So keep believing in him. Keep believing that he is good and pray. God is good and knows how to give good gifts. So pray. And trust that when he answers a prayer, God is not giving you a scorpion and he is not giving you a serpent. He's giving you good. So Jesus invites us into this kind of prayer life. And I think that sometimes the reason why I, anyway, and maybe some of you, think that prayer is a burden is because we may even see all these things, but then in the moment when we're praying, we forget the gospel. Because when we pray, we're drawing near to God, and I think our unholy, sinful self is exposed. Our sinful hearts come to light when we draw near to a holy God. It's easy to live separated from him. That's what Adam and Eve like to do, go hide somewhere in the garden. And that's our tendency, to go hide somewhere else away from God. But then when we're praying, we're like opening the door to heaven. And then we're like, oh, oh yeah, wait a minute. There's this problem with me. And we see our sinful hearts. We see the distractions of this world. It's as if we approach God with our hands filled with idols and cookie crumbs all over our mouth of the stuff we weren't supposed to eat. And we start studying with our words. And it's like, ah, oh, I don't know what to say because we think that when we look up to God, we're going to see a face of disappointment, anger, and judgment looking down at us. But remember the gospel. Remember that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for those sins, for all the times that you worshiped those idols and treated God as less than, for all the times you walked in disobedience and broke his commandments. Jesus died, shed his blood to forgive you completely for your sins, to present you holy and blameless and spotless before God so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and say to him, God, you are my father. And when we look up, we can see his face looking back at us with compassionate eyes, a loving embrace. And we can see his grace and his mercy for us and his invitation to pray because he longs to hear our voice. No matter what it sounds like, he wants to hear from his children. Even when you don't know what to say, even when you have some bad things to say, he wants to hear your voice. 
So let me conclude this morning by reading a little bit of a longer quote. It's from a section of a sermon from James Hamilton, who I'm sure you all know, as a Scottish pastor from over 200 years ago. And he thought and studied a lot about prayer. And he preached this sermon on prayer. And I want to to read this section of it because it just grips me, and I hope it grips you as well. And I kind of paraphrase a little bit of it and change some of the words just to let you know because it was a little bit more King James Old English type style. I mean, Scottish pastor from 200 years ago. I had to look up some of the words he used. I'm not that smart. So here it is, um, James Hamilton. I hope it encourages you to pray. He says, Prayer is not a consultation with the highest wisdom with which this world can supply. It is not speaking with an angel or a spirit made perfect but it is a drawing near to the living God. It is access to the high and holy one who inhabits eternity. It is detailing in the ear of divine sympathy every sorrow. It is consulting with divine wisdom on every difficulty. It is asking from divine resources the supply of every want. And this, not once in a lifetime, or for a few moments on a certain day of the year, but at any moment, at every time of need. Whatever be the day of your distress, it is a day when prayer is allowable. Whatever be the time of your calamity, it is a time when prayer is available. However early in the morning you seek the gate of heaven, you find it already open. And however dark the midnight moment when you find yourself in the sudden arms of death, the winged prayer can bring an instant Savior near. And this, wherever you are. It needs not that you climb some special mountain of God. It needs not that you should enter some awful shrine or put off your shoes on some holy ground. Could a memento be placed on every spot from which an acceptable prayer has been uttered and on which a prompt answer has come down? We should find Jehovah Shema, the Lord has been here, inscribed on many a living room mantle and many a dungeon floor. Whether it be in the field where Isaac went to meditate, or the rocky knoll where Jacob lay down to sleep, or the brook where Israel wrestled, or the den where Daniel gazed on the hungry lions and the lions gazed at him, or the hillside where the man of sorrows prayed all night, we should still see the imprints of the ladder that was lowered from heaven, the landing place of the mercies of God which had their starting point in prayer. And all this, whoever you are, it needs no perfect saint, no perfectly obedient child, no person skilled in beautiful language, no high honor or earthly rank. It needs but a simple Hannah, a stuttering Moses. It needs but a blind beggar or an unclean leper. It needs but a repentant sinner or dying thief. And it needs no costly passport or ticket of entry, no painful payment to bring you to the mercy seat. Or rather, I should say, it needs the costliest of all, the priceless blood of atonement, the Savior's merit, Christ himself. But priceless as this is, costs the sinner nothing. 
They are freely put at his disposal, and instantly and constantly he may use them. This access to God in every place, at every moment, without any price or any personal merit, is this not an amazing privilege? So Overland Hills Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, pray. Pray because God is your heavenly Father and He's listening to you. So pray. Pray because God is compassionate and He cares for you in your time of need. So pray. God is an amazing gift giver who is good in all things and He knows how to give good gifts. So pray. Wherever you are, whenever you are, whatever you're doing, pray, pray, pray. So would you join me now in prayer? Lord, to think that you are here in this room listening to our prayers You bend your ear, lean out over your seat, in a sense, anxious to hear from your children. So God, I ask that we would see prayer as an amazing privilege. The burden that Satan likes to make it, I pray, would fall away from every single one of us. And we'd wake in the morning longing to speak to you. We'd be prepared to go to bed at night wishing to say one final thing to you. Through the day's ups and downs, the valleys and the mountains, through our times of rejoicing and our times of sorrow, Lord, I pray that we would be a people of prayer. May we gather together and pray. Lord, would you cause our hearts to stir for one another and pray for each other whether in person or in the quiet closet of our homes. Lord, I pray that you would draw us near through our prayers, that we would see you rightly as our good God, our heavenly Father, the one who graciously and compassionately gives us good things. And Lord, may we operate then by faith, trusting in you and the good gifts that you give day by day. Lord, may you be praised for all time. Make us a people of prayer, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.